if we line up everything we've done mm -hmm. and we say, what's the correlation between all the successful companies and the ones that have some trouble? Mm -hmm. The number one correlation that we would say is probably happening at a huge, at a huge percentage is great CEOs build great companies. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. My guest on today's episode of the Inspire Podcast is Michael Hyatt. If you haven't heard of Michael Hyatt, he's a hugely successful Canadian entrepreneur who, by the time he had turned 25, had already become a self-made millionaire. Now in his 40s, he has sold two companies for a reported $500 million. He is a mentor, an investor, a speaker on leadership, and today he sits on the board of Blue Cat, one of the companies he sold. He's also a founding partner at the Rotman School of Management's Creative Destruction Lab. But perhaps most relevant for this podcast is that he's been a dragon on CBC's Next Gen Dragon Den program and is a venture capitalist on the Gimlet podcast, The Pitch, which I highly recommend you listen to. Why are these things relevant? Well, because Michael spends his time listening to hundreds of pitches a year and through this experience has developed real clarity about what success in the pitching process looks like. We met at a kid's birthday party, and over the course of a discussion, I came to realize I had to have him on the podcast to share his perspectives and insights into what it takes to pitch an idea successfully. Now, you may not be going to raise venture capital, but there is no question that if you want to influence and inspire, you'd better be able to pitch an idea, no matter what line of work you're in. And so what Michael will share with you has real relevance and value for whatever it is that you want to do. Now, a note on the audio, we record this podcast in the boardroom and the volume is low and you can hear me shuffling papers from time to time as I take notes feverishly. But aside from that, it's a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome, Michael Hyatt, to the Inspire podcast. It's, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Researching you, I, I've I've kind of realized that you've spent a lot of time either pitching or being pitched to. Um, you're you're doing the podcast, the Gimlet podcast, the pitch right now, and you were on. What's it called? Dragons and Next Gen. Yeah, I did a couple of years of that. that, mm -hmm. that we never do that anymore, but it was the online mm -hmm. Dragons Gen. Yeah. And you're a professional investor now, right? Yeah, that's right. So I imagine that the bulk of your time is spent uh, considering businesses to invest in and listening to pitches. Right. Is that a fair comment? I get a lot of them, mm -hmm. uh, other manufactured kind of on the show where people come in right. um, and a part of a show, which is all real, or I get them at the Creative Destruction Lab UFT too, mm -hmm. a lot there. Uh, and I get them at part of the, I'm uh, an entrepreneur residence at Blake's when I came to those largest law firms and they have a program called Nitro where we got a lot of uh, the startups coming in there too. So I get a lot from all angles. You know? How many pitches a year would you say you listen to? 10 to 20 a month you know, maybe more, but that's only because I chum them down, right? Like I just, I I can't say yes to listening to all of them. Right. I mean, some of them right away, I'm like, 
I'm not into this. And most of the time where my gut is, I don't know about this, by the time I hear the pitch, I'm like pretty much correct mm-hmm. that I shouldn't be in this room and this is not going to be for me. And then you're stuck in there. <laughs> well, I try to I try to turn it around and I try to give them constructive feedback of what I think they should do if they want to raise money. Mm-hmm. Because I think we do this disservice to a lot of pitches is that we smile and we're like, hey, you guys are so great, amazing, we'll think about it, we'll call you back, when it's really a no, but I didn't give them anything for their time. Mm-hmm. And I think we do people a disservice. So I actually tell them what I think they need to do to make this a, an investable company. Most companies that people start aren't investable. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and if you want to pitch a business, the first thing you need to do is stop being an entrepreneur for a second and put on an investor's hat and ask, well, if I was investing, what would I need to hear? Mm-hmm. The first thing is, The first rule of investing is actually the return of your capital, not the return on capital. So when an investor looks at a pitch or looks at a company, they think, am I ever going to get my money back, let alone a return on that money? So entrepreneurs need to understand that all capital moves in a a way of a risk return, risk reward, risk reward. The whole thing is a balance of risk reward. So let's start on the bottom end of the scale. If I go today and I buy treasury notes from the federal government or the U.S. government or GICs from the Canadian government, basically it's almost a 100% chance I'm getting my money back. But you're going to get paid very little for that. You're going to get 2 to 3% a year. Which will be taxed. Which will be taxed. And uh, pretty much if anybody ever comes to you and guarantees you a return higher than 2 or 3, guarantees you a return higher than that, they, they are already wrong. Up from that, there's some bonds. Up from that, you got some stocks. And up from that, you got private equity. And so the risk-adjusted returns for you know private equity and venture capital is probably, when you boil them all down, between 10 and 20% a year. But to get that, you're going to have to take a lot more risk. And I think a lot of people think that they invest in a company, and in a couple of years, they're going to get a great return. They're going to sell this company to Google or something. It's all going to be amazing because they know better than the markets. And if you actually break it down to how many companies actually transact or actually get liquid or how many people's private stocks get liquid, it's very, very, very few. So, you know, you need to really understand that as an investor, you know, uh, your likelihood of return is, is, is much less than you think. And when you're asking for money, you should really try to sit on the other side of the table and think, how can I return capital to my investors? So do most people who pitch then make the mistake of coming at it from the standpoint of their own business and how they're running the business? Most people who pitch a business ask for money without any idea of how they're going to make that person money. They almost think that investors put in money to be part of something great for a while. That's not kind, that's kind of only half true. People put money into a company because they want to return. So if, if, if that same entrepreneur just stopped for a second and had to invest his or her money in a company, they would suddenly now get on the other side of the table and then ask the question, how am I going to get a return on my money? If not, why aren't we just buying stocks or bonds or things that are liquid? We're buying an illiquid asset class because we're expecting a greater return for that illiquidity. Hmm. Well, and it's, it's fascinating you say that. You know, listening to I just listened to three episodes of the pitch. Not one of them talked about the investor return because they they feel that I'm coming in with a great company. Mm-hmm. You're somewhat lucky to be in it, and this valuation I'm asking for is kind of where other people are getting. And it, all, of those, all of those statements are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be coming in and saying, hi, I've got this great business where I'm taking it. I understand you're an investor and you want to return on your money. Let me tell you how I'm going to get you a return on your money. Tell you why this company is going to scale. Why people are going to drink the champagne or dogs are going to eat the dog food. Right. This is going to be the demand for this. 
And then it's really interesting as an investor, let's say you invest in a company at a $5 million valuation, a couple of years they do around at 20 million. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm up so much money. I'm feeling so rich today. But you're not, you're, as an investor, that's another mistake. I'm in a company right now where I'm up over 40 times my money. But it's a liquid, so am I up? It's not cash. What are you gonna do with your maybe gain? And so don't count your chickens before they're hatched. And and listen, start investing like how your mother taught you, which is this, you know, there, there's no, there's no bankable uh, return, and and it works both ways. Some people are in companies that have done terribly for four years, and then suddenly they turn them around. So if we go back to people who were pitching, so step one is to put yourself in the shoes of the investor. It's the main thing to do it's because then you're going to understand what the reasoning is mm-hmm. for investing. So once you've taken that mindset, what kind of prep? I and mean, when you look at people who do a good job with you, and you know actually convey something that's compelling. What do you think they've done in advance or not done that sets them up for success? First off, they have a very simple, really smart people take very complex things and make them simple. People who have a great pitch come in and say, hey, hi, my name is, this is why I started this company. And often the best companies are started because of someone's frustration and they had to achieve something they couldn't buy somewhere else. Started this company because I noticed this whole, I did it for myself and I did this and other people didn't want it. They show what the demand is. And then it comes down to some real math. Like, okay, you're selling this widget. What's the gross margin? And if you listen to the pitch, I'm the guy pushing most of the time for math and numbers and gross margin. And people go, oh my God, here's Hyatt again, pushing for numbers. But if you are selling this widget, this thing, and you don't have a good enough gross margin, it's gonna tell me that eventually I can't make enough money out of this. To explain companies, all companies on our planet are valued on one key metric in the future, and that's future, future cash flow potential. So earnings that drop down to cash flow or free cash flow. Right. The reason why Facebook had an astronomical valuation early is that investors that were smart and savvy said, and so does Zuckerberg. I remember when he was offered $8 billion in like 2007 for this company. I thought, this guy's crazy not to take it. But he understood something that I didn't. And his insider knowledge was this. If you follow out what I'm doing, we're going to have such a high EBITDA, such a high net and then net margin that I'm going to be have such massive cash flows that I'm going to be worth a fortune. And he understood that. So that's why they're worth hundreds of billions, because if you look at the average S&P company at 10 percent bottom line, he's at 47. And he understood. And the the investors early said, I'm on this train because if this thing explodes, the future cash flow potential is massive. He's not selling hardware, right? There's this scalable, infinitely scalable. scalable. He's selling electrons on on software. Margins are zero. Mm -hmm. Same with Google. Mm -hmm. Huge moat. Huge moat. And, you know, the the thing about these companies that they understand that they're going to have real growth and demand. Growth is the number one thing for the valuation of a company because if growth is increasing or accelerating and you're growing, like if a market's growing 20% and you're mm-hmm. growing 30, that means you're taking market mm-hmm. share. If a market's growing 50% and you're growing a great 30%, you're losing market mm-hmm. share even though you're growing. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing is that the the, invest, the second thing is, so first you got to put yourself in the mind of investors. And the second thing that's part of that is you've got to have a really strong grasp of the numbers that demonstrate how the future return is going to be compelling. The number one indicator of health early on is gross margin, which is what you sell your product for minus the cost of goods sold. So if I'm selling this cup and this cup, you know, I sell for a dollar, but it only costs me 10 cents to make and everything else in that, my gross margin is 90%. 
And that is an amazing starting point for an amazing company. The right. question is, does that get compressed down? Because if you don't have a strong gross margin, it's very hard after paying humans, heating, lighting, rent, and everything right. else that you're ever going to have future cash flows. Right. Because if you start so at 15%, you need a big, a big margin to start. You need a, a defensible moated mm. margin that you can defend because if you start at a gross margin of 20%, then you have to have a terrific volume to hit a cash flow. And then you have to sell me on the fact that it's not going to compress down to 2%. Right. What percent of people who you hear a year do you think have a clear grasp of these numbers? 10%. That low? Maybe, maybe five. Have you ever invested in someone who doesn't? Yeah, because there's another whole trick, and I'm going to start like I'm speaking outside, outside of my mouth, <laughs> is, is, is the other side to this is the number one thing on a startup that you invest in isn't those numbers that I'm putting out. I'm at a, a great. I'm up on an advisory board of a great venture capitalist firm in, in, in Toronto called Georgian Partners, and I really, probably, you know, pound for pound, one of the most successful um, VCs around in Canada, and they're doing amazing things. And for all these reasons, but if we line up everything we've done mm-hmm. and we say what's the correlation between all the successful companies and the ones that have some trouble, mm-hmm. the number one correlation that we would say is probably happening at a huge at a huge percentage is great CEOs build great companies. Hmm. And it's as simple as that. And what do you define as a great CEO? Oh gosh, someone who is coachable, smart. I mean, if the CEO sits there at a board meeting and goes, I heard everybody, but I'm mm-hmm. gonna tell you why I'm gonna go back to my way, we're in real trouble. The greatest CEOs are really coachable people that take people on that uh, that challenge them, take executives on that challenge them, allow smarter people than them right. to join their company, you know, challenge the status quo, are humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, Jim Collins wrote it 20 years ago in a book called Good to Great. Mm-hmm. He is completely right. Mm-hmm. It was never the charismatic rock stars. Mm-hmm. It was these, you know, more introverted people that were asking why, staying heads in, you know, heads low and focused on the question of why. And these level five leaders, that's what makes a great company. And so really in early stage, I'm not betting on you understanding things that I was a crystal ball because I think you're going to probably be wrong, but I'm going to bet on your ability to pivot. What are some things from how they communicate and what they say that you look for as indicators that there'll be someone you will be able to work with? Look, if, 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 if I we started this podcast talking about my brother's birthday party mm-hmm. for his kid. If I invited you to that birthday party mm-hmm. and I didn't like you, mm-hmm. like hanging around that bar, because right. it actually had a bar. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> if I didn't want to hang around and talk to you at that right. bar, I'm not investing in you. If I don't like mm-hmm. you, I'm not investing in you. I don't care. I don't, yeah. If you're, listen, and I've seen companies raise terrific amount of money with very cocky CEOs. And I'm like, look, you guys are doing really well, but you no. do know you're going to have to make some revenue here. And they're like, yeah, but we're the best and we're this, we're that. And I'm like, okay, but eventually your widget's going to have to sell. Right. But, you know, this company and this company just gave us 50 million or 100 million. We are cloud nine. Is like raising money is not success. It's raising money, money, you're on the clock to return right. capital. So listen, let's, let's, so let's put our hats on for a second and say we're an entrepreneur and we just took in money. And we, we, we are at a 10 million valuation and we just raised $5 million. Okay. Let me explain to you what that means. That means your post money valuation is now 15. Okay. okay. That means that that investor on a bad day needs you to exit the company at least $45 million. It would be really great if you could exit at 60 or 75 for them to actually do well. Mm-hmm. Funds need to return a minimum of three times and they need to try to get some five or six times. And why is that? Because so many will fail. That's right. Because if you look at their portfolio, 
The reason they don't want you to do 3x, actually 3x, by the way, is a smashing success. If you return 3x in five years, right. that IR is in the 20s, and mm-hmm. that is an incredible return when T-bills pay 2% mm-hmm. and stocks are paying 5 to 8 So listen, I'm fantastic if a VC is returning in right. 3x to me because that's amazing, but, but you the problem is that- all the failures. Well, there's a bunch that will give zero, and there's a bunch that give 1x return because you have these pref shares that protect you on the downside. But once you model that all into a return, you know, they, they, so, okay, so fine. So I know now I raised $5 million and these guys are looking for me to try to get to 60 million exit. What okay. a 60 million exit, you know, you need to get your revenues recurring and growing at a really nice pace to be at least $6 million and a nice growth rate with a nice gross margin the way up to be worth $60 million on a best case. Right, 10x, uh, you're multiplying right. your, your software revenues out. If you're a yeah. SaaS company in a good market and you're growing at like 60, 70% and you're not burning too much cash and you have a good gross mm-hmm. margin, you're in a sexy market, maybe you get 10x and somebody buys you. Mm-hmm. But more likely you're gonna do, a, you know, you're probably gonna raise money at seven to eight X in this market and you're gonna have to take on more money, dilute. Right. But mm-hmm. the, the, the thing is, is that once you take on money, you have agreed, and this is key, You've agreed to sell your company. Hmm. The minute you take on money, so if I invest in your company here, you're agreeing to something. The day will come where I'm out. (laughs) Well, no, you're either going to buy me out, dividend me out, pay me out, do something. But I'm putting money into this company or the next company because I'm getting a return. And there's a clock ticking of when you want that. As soon as you take the money, stop stop having your rooftop patio parties right. and stop having these we are amazing parties because now you should be a little bit frightened because you now are agreeing to sell your company or buy them out. Right. And do you think most of the people who pitch recognize that? No. I think most people think raising money is success. And I think it's like, uh, it's like a trivial pursuit game when you have six pieces of the pie. That's right. one piece of the pie. Hmm. So you better go get the other five. In some ways, it's a piece of the pie that that changes the pie you're making because it's not just you can't just operate the steady state business. You would now have to deliver that maximum return in the period of time. Listen, like th- th- you could return your VC three times their money, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be that happy because it's not your fault. It's because they have three failures in the fund, and they need you to do five or six. Right. And listen, that's the way the deal works. VCs mm-hmm. work by investing in ten companies, and hopefully three of them do really well. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the truth of this game. And it's not it's just because most companies don't do well. I mean, you, you read the newspapers, how many companies you see a year sell and, and you see a published big number? Actually incredibly few. Right? And that's They're because like lottery winners basically. In some ways. Um, it's not as bad as a lottery winner because you can certainly manufacture an outcome. But let me tell you how you manufacture an outcome. You have a great growth and you show that you can have some bottom line. Showing profit is actually important. And if you can show profit that means you don't have to raise more money so your timeline can go out. You can restructure the company, you can refinance the company, you can take on debt. But if you're a profitable company, you have like three more options that a non-profitable company doesn't have. It's interesting, I mean, you know, as someone who you know has no outside money yeah. and who runs a profitable company, in some ways sometimes I'm like, the, the uh, celebration, like Toronto Life's got features of people raising money, you know, we've got shows like The Pitch, yeah. and, and there's this kind of aura around the glories of, of startup, and yet I feel like real businesses—it's almost you know profitable, sustainable businesses—don't aren't celebrated as much in the same way. It, it's not sexy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, my company Blue Cat now, which I sit on the board of, that I sold the majority. Now I have a minority mm-hmm. stake. We're very profitable, mm-hmm. and we keep getting more profitable. And we had this exact conversation at the board meeting this week. It's like we are going to be. Uh, one at the pound for pound in the next couple of years, one of the most profitable software companies in this country. 
like percentage wise. But and you that's know, not wrong. sexy. No, it's not. <laughs> and it's not sexy, but these are huge numbers and we're doing so well and we're growing really nicely and we're getting subscription revenue and we're this and that. But one of the things we're most proud of as a board is that we're really producing cash. Because, and what does that mean? We have a nice fat gross margin. Yeah. Our customers you recur, sleep at night. <laughs> sleep at night. We can buy what we want. We can buy companies. Um, and, and, and look, let me tell you how you can really sell the health of a business. There's this thing out in the world of investing, uh, investment bankers. Mm -hmm. It's called the rule of 50. Some people call it the rule of 40. Some people call it the rule of 45, but let me give you the drift. You take your growth rate, whatever percentage that is, and you look at your EBITDA bottom line. So if you're growing at 30%, then you need EBIT of 20 to get the 50. So you add the, the two together equaling 50. Yeah, so if you're a rule, if you're a 50 rule company, your valuation is dramatically higher than a 30 rule or a 40 rule company. It's not 1x more, it's like three, four x more. Like as soon as you hit the rule of 50 and you got some scale, so let's say your revenue is $20 million Mm -hmm. and you're growing at 30% on the top with 20 on the bottom, Mm -hmm. you're a really valuable company because I could come in and slow the growth down to 10 and up the bottom to 40, print cash, I could recap the company, I could dividend the company, I could take on private equity, I could take on debt, all the options are there. Now, if you're growing at 80% and you're losing 40, some people say, well, I'm a rule of 40 company. (laughs) No, no, no. Actually, if you're growing at 80% and you were losing 30 and you're rule of 50 and you're on a hot market. Because you might be buying market share. You are buying market share and you had it at a really strong backer and you had VC saying, you can burn 40% a year because you're growing at 80. It's great. But... That next year, you got to grow another 80 mm. on the 80 that you grew. Mm. So if suddenly you're growing at 80 and it slows to a horrible 60, which is not horrible, you by the way. The, the you're going to have to trim right. your bottom line now. You're going to have to trim staff. You're going to trim all this. Now, suddenly you're doing terribly at a 60% growth. Mm. So I, I would tell people that what you really want to do is grow a company. You know, listen, very few companies get above 10 million in revenue in this mm. country. But if you could get above 10 million and you somehow had the rule of 40 or 50 mm-hmm. and you create some bottom line, I think you're doing great. Mm. Uh, I think you're doing tremendously well. Hmm. So when you're um, back to the pitch and what you coach people on. So in these, you've talked about the investor mindset, mm. having the financial grasp, being able to show that you can be a partner who you can work with. What would you say, like, let's flip the tables and say, like, what are the biggest mistakes that you see people make? Because you sit through you know, 200 some pitches. Generally, you come in the room and you generally don't know what you're talking about. And you, you're getting advice that I call it the barbecue advice. You go to okay. a barbecue and he's like, my friend at the barbecue told me that his friend raised money at this. It's all this rumor mill. So my, I must be worth that too. You know, you never know how much your house is worth till you list it. Mm-hmm. Everybody on the street thinks their house is worth more than it is. Mm-hmm. I remember I learned this lesson years ago. I went... Um, I know I was with my grandmother and she wanted to go to the cat show. And I, I got to tell you, I do the like cat cats. show. The cat show. There's, a, a, there's a cat, cat show. Yeah, it was like 20 years ago. We went to the cat show <laughs> and I loved it because I love cats and blue cat, right? Do you have cats? I, they both passed away, but uh, they were, I found one on the street and she lasted to the age of 19 and wow, she never liked me, but I loved her. And um, that's kind of like the core of a cat relationship anyway. Yeah. Cats are like, I hate you. So feed yeah. me. But I remember this cat show and I'm like, I saw this cat. I thought it was gorgeous. And I thought, you know. Maybe I could buy this cat. I don't know why I thought that. So I said to the lady, would you sell your cat? And she's like, oh, yeah, for sure. I go, well, how much would your cat be? And she says, 100000 What? And I, and I realized something in business in that moment. And she was serious. And it wasn't just – she just thought 
her cat was worth that. And it's, that's what she thinks. To her, it was worth. Yeah. yeah. To her, it's worth that. And it wasn't just an emotional statement. She just thought that Prussian blue cat or whatever was that important. And everybody thinks their cat or house or things that they own is worth more than actually the market right. will bear. So the price of anything, ladies and gentlemen, is what the market's willing to pay for mm-hmm. it. If you think your company's worth 25 million, let's see if someone's going to pay for those. I mean, the price of Bitcoin is what someone's willing to pay for it. And right now, people are paying 4,000 Bitcoin, and then two years ago, they were paying 20,000. And it was right on both times. It was just what people are willing to pay. And everybody has a bias. Everybody comes in thinking that because their friend raised at 8 million, they're worth at least that because they're, they're, not, they're way better. Yeah, than they've got AI, they got blocked. They come in the room, they say, we're a quantum AI block, all the buzzwords. And you just, when you chum it down, they have a PowerPoint deck and a few mm-hmm. smart people, mm-hmm. right? And all I'm looking for is invest in a great bunch of honest people. The number one thing I look for mm-hmm. is very simple. It's integrity. I, I look and for How people, do you discern that in, in like a half hour? <laughs> Well, first off, my gut is really good. Mm-hmm. Like I have a gut feeling and I don't feel good about mm-hmm. people, not intellectually. I just don't feel good about mm-hmm. you. I don't do it. Right. Um, and feelings are really important. It's the highest form of communication we have. And at the end of the day, I have to feel that you're a high integrity person. That you're going to do the right thing. And listen, I've been in a lot of business deals where push comes to shove later on. People don't do the right things. And is that where you're, you, in retrospect, your gut was wrong? Yeah, I can be wrong for sure. Definitely, uh, you can be wrong about people. Um, you know, there's a lot of time when people have the ability to do the wrong thing. You'd be surprised at how many times they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I think your reputation is worth much more than any money you could ever make. Your integrity is everything. Toronto's a big city, but it's a very small town. Well, it is small. And, and uh, I walk away from everything where integrity is an issue. Mm-hmm. I walked away from two companies this year a couple of companies this year where I felt that they did the wrong thing and I explained it to them they didn't believe it and I said we're doing the wrong thing so I'm out and if no, you don't companies you already invested in that you like. I didn't invest in I was just consulting for okay. and I gave I was giving them advice I'm like I can't advise you anymore because you're literally doing the wrong thing right. and uh, and I explained it to them and they kind of yeah you're right but I'm like listen I'm not into this right. and uh, you, you know you'd be surprised in a company that culture is everything in that people want to work for people of high integrity. And Absolutely. if someone like said, what's it working, working with my kayak? I, I don't mind if they call me tough. I don't mind if they call me, I've heard stuff like, oh, he seems American, all tough and all that. <laughs> but if they said, ah, he was spineless and didn't have integrity, that right. would crush me. Right. You can say a lot about me, but those things would really be hurtful because I, um, I never thought the money was worth it to not mm-hmm. have integrity. Uh, and... Uh, Really, you have to trust people you partner mm-hmm. with, and you have to trust them for two reasons. You have to trust them to do the right things. You have to trust them not to embarrass you. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, in this company, I think you know the culture we've really sought to create as a team is fundamentally important. And I think there's too much of a focus on results in business without the corollary of how do you get those results? Because if you're building a business for the long term, those things undermine the former. And so to me, you know, people look for your consistency. Everybody in a company looks at you. And when you tolerate a bad apple, like you don't fire them. It sends a message message like, Mm -hmm. okay, they're letting that person stay. He's being really rude. He's being really mean. He's being disrespectful. He's being condescending. But because he's an A player and he brings in money, we're going to keep him. That's the message. We'll take in money and we'll take keep a bully. 
And then, then you've set your level set. You've said that that's our standard. Um, I've never found anybody valuable enough not to fire at a company, ever. Everybody, including Michael Hyde, is replaceable in a company. In fact, it's, I fired myself twice as CEO and really? put in people. Yeah, I, I removed myself Why? as CEO because I didn't want to do it in that company anymore. And I found somebody who had more passion because at Blue Cat, I'd been doing it for a decade. And I felt that the, the shareholders in the company deserve somebody. And I put in this guy named Mike Harris. Him and I are super good friends. He's amazing. He single-handedly you know, brought this company up to something that I felt I didn't have the guts mm-hmm. for. At a certain point, he's done amazing, and he's just—we—he's just a high-integrity, right. great operator. And it, it was a gift to the shareholders, a gift to the staff, saying, "I'm going to give you someone who I think can do the next ten right. years." And it's exactly, exactly what's happening. And I was proving to the staff that, like, I'm still here, I'm on the board, I'm involved, mm-hmm. but I'm going to gift you what I've always said to you—that mm-hmm. when I'm not available to do it at that level, I'm going to gift I'll you give someone, you someone who's who better. Mm-hmm. And I did it. Right. You know, so everybody's replaceable, including the founders. Everybody's included, including the investors. The board has to change. It has to change. Uh, and no one is valuable enough to keep that it behaves badly. And uh, culture is everything. Mm-hmm. And people, you have a union in your company, whether you have one or not. Every company has a union. Mm-hmm. A company has, is a breathing organic thing of a bunch of people doing something right. And people will behave exactly by the way that union exists. If they feel, you know, if, if, if you come in and I just read this article today of this fast food chain in the U.S. just got bought out by these new owners. And they slashed the minimum wage from $9 to $4, which is, I can't even understand how $9. How can you have a $4 minimum Well, in some places in the South, you can. And they said, we're basically going to let you live on your tips. And and, and it's like $9 is is not a living wage. We're going to bring you to four and make it harder. And they expected people to go, hooray. And and really, basically, it was really interesting because the whole, and there's one store, literally 100% of the staff walked out and I agree with yeah, them. If you want to buy a company and you're going to start off by cutting people's salary 50%, then, you know, you know, your, your company is going to fire you. Right. So do you, when you're interviewing people or when you're getting pitched by people, do you try and understand the kind of culture they're going to create in a company? Or yeah. And how I, do I, I, I tell them straight to their face, listen, you need to build a great culture because you're either a great person, but if you don't believe that and you that's not the reason why you're doing it, do it so you can make yourself and everybody money. Right. At least Meaning be pragmatic. Pay, pay, pay people well, treat people well, be, be you know, give, give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I mean, create, uh, you know, just raising people's salary doesn't do it either. People want autonomy, they want purpose, they want to be behind something, they want to follow you up a hill for a reason. If you, and, 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 and a fish rots from the head. If, if the leader, <laughs> If the leader doesn't do and say what they do, if the leader doesn't show up and is, you know, man, always late. I got this one company where the leader shows up at, you know, one, strolls in at 10, you know, real busy, you know, relaxation. I'm like, well, we're dead. Yeah. We're dead because you're basically walking in and saying that you don't have to do much and you're not going to lead by example. Right. You know, if you don't fight in the trenches, well, certainly your people won't. Right. Um, you know, at any one time when I was running a company, I wanted my people to know at any one time, I will go to any meeting, I'll call any client, I'll outsell any sales rep, mm-hmm. I'll turn up to any meeting, nothing was beneath right. me. I stood at the booth, even when my company was 400 people, I would go to a trade show and I'd stand at the booth and I would sell, mm-hmm. and it would just say Michael Hyde, it wouldn't say president, and right. I would sell alongside the, the the rep that was just hired last week. And, and that if, goes a long way. Yeah, because culturally I want them to know that I will fight in the trench. Mm-hmm. and if. That's a cultural tone mm-hmm. uh, that you need to set. And if you just are dismissive or you can't set that tone, you're never going to grow build a great business. I mean, a lot of these people who come to you at early stages, they don't have a business yet. They have the, the gem of a business or the idea of they a business. They, they think they do. Oh, yeah. Or 
at best, right? And so is it premature? Like that kind of leadership and that ability to create a culture, it's almost like that hasn't been tested at that stage unless they've done that other company. And so do you still need to evaluate there or do you think we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it? I think that when I get into a company, if I find out that the culture is not going to stick, I, I'm really brutally honest with mm-hmm. these. Uh, I set these. I'm. I think I'm relatively convincing too. I'll set the founders down and say, "Look, um, I'm going to show you how your self, own self interest is going to crumble. You're going to lose this company, and you're going to be pretty embarrassed because, you know, you're not setting the right cultural right. tone, and it is sad when you don't do the right things." Mm-hmm. Um, and. I think they do. They respond to that. Yeah, they do respond to that. Uh, but great people, you know, generally don't get in that situation. Right. But listen, everybody makes investing mistakes. Yeah. Um, uh, we have, I have, like invested in companies where the leader just doesn't listen, hmm. and they're going to have an outcome where they're going to sell the company. The investors get their money back in a bit. They'll make no money, and they blew it. They blew it economically for themselves. Right. I mean, it's it's amazing just to kind of wrap everything you're talking about here the number of qualities like you, you've got to have the vision for the business you know you've got to have the math you've got to be able to guide it through this growth you've got to be able to transition to being someone who creates culture yeah i mean it's almost like a, a super person and do you usually have to settle for some but not all of these things if they got a couple other people in the team that that helps them i think you're okay I think in general, building a company is extraordinarily hard. Mm-hmm. The failure rates are really, really high. Mm-hmm. And they should be. It's very hard. Uh, we glorify the apprentice. We glorify the entrepreneur, but brutally hard business. Yeah. You, you're, you're a couple. you got a couple of kids. You're going to start a business. Maybe your marriage is going to fail. Maybe you're going to lose your house. You know, like, you know you're, you're, you're done. I mean, like, yeah, you, will, you could lose everything that you yeah. have. Most likely, you should not start a business. Most likely, right. you and your partner... Should go and take your paycheck on the fifteenth and thirtieth and invest in a salary. Well, yeah. you know that you run a company. Yeah. You know, I mean, it comes most, with risk, crazy risk. I mean, you lose everything, Absolutely. and and so stop glorifying it. It is hard, yeah. and um, I think we do people a disservice by saying that everybody can start a business because that's truly, you know, I think if I said one in ten, I think that's too mm-hmm. high. Right. So just to wrap it up, if there are three things you were going to say, you know, you're you're going to sit through our two hundred fifty pitches this year top three things that you'd advise the people who are going to pitch to you or to anyone who they want to raise money from? Drill down your company to the basics and really make it very simple to understand right away why this is a good business. Show that you have real traction with users, that people really want this. And lastly, show how you could really get margin in this business. Uh, That you could really uh, show that as long as we get some reasonable scaling, it's really going to print out money. Because there's no other reason to go into this company. Right. Well, look, I appreciate you talking about this. Sure. It's fun. Hope you enjoyed my discussion with Michael Hyatt. Really uh, felt fortunate to have him on the show and to provide his insights into what it takes to pitch successfully. Uh, And certainly a lot to take away, even if you're never going to raise VC funding on how you can really think of your audience think about what's relevant to them and come prepared to make the case to them uh, for why they should support your idea. Next week on the Inspire Podcast, have someone else from the world of tech. It's Jordan Eakers. And Jordan is the chief customer officer and co-founder of a really cool company called Nudge Rewards. 
and Nudge is a company that uh, leading retailers use uh, to empower and inspire frontline staff to deliver great experience to customers. And uh, as I'll talk about in the next episode, kind of represents a missing piece in my career. Uh, I've spent my life working with executives and senior leaders on vision, on message, and what they want to convey. And what Jordan's company and the technology they use does is allow those leaders to reach every single person at the front line. So a lot to uh, unpack in that, uh, but I hope you will tune in for my conversation with Jordan.